Good morning. You have a big problem and so do I. Most of us live as if it's not real or as if we are the exception to the problem. But it's coming. One day my heart will stop beating, my brain will stop functioning. Death is the great enemy that plagues all of us. It casts a dark shadow over everything we say and everything we do because everything we say and do is done in light of that coming moment. I wish it wasn't so. I really wish it wasn't so. But what if there was hope beyond? Would you listen? Woody Allen kind of the poster boy of nihilism. Nihilism is a philosophy that says this is all there is. Um, When we die, we rot. Nothing means anything. No purpose. And uh, Woody Allen is scared of death. He talks about it. He jokes about it from time to time as if he can chase it away with humor. Here's Woody Allen. I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. Despite what we tell ourselves at funerals, death is not natural. It never was. We say that, I don't know, to comfort ourselves or something. Death is not part of God's original design and creation. Death, in the biblical vision of reality, is a foreign intruder. It's the consequence and the proof that we have rebelled and sinned against our creator God. It is something that we were never meant to. To experience. But in the midst of the darkness, there is incredible, earth shattering, death defying news, if you're willing to listen. Our scripture this morning in the But God series we've just begun is Acts chapter 13. You can turn there with me if you'd like. Acts chapter 13, I'll be reading verses 26 down through 31. And then we'll scroll down a little bit and read verse 38 and 39. Let me just read this. Acts 13, verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days 
he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is God's word. I'd like us to look at three important things this morning, three points. We'll look together at first, the surprising focus of the whole Bible. Secondly, the fact of Jesus' resurrection. And then thirdly, the meaning of the resurrection. So the surprising focus of the Bible, the fact of the resurrection, and the meaning of the resurrection. So first, the book of Acts, of course, is the history of the early church. Stories and accounts of the explosive growth of Christianity. And this passage is part of a larger address that Paul is giving in Acts chapter 13, and it's obsessed with the resurrection. This address from Paul looks a lot like many of the other addresses we have recorded in the book of Acts. Many of the other sermons recorded in Acts share these same distinct qualities. They are often obsessed with Jesus' resurrection, and they're often, uh, they go to great lengths to defend, to make the case that Jesus is the true fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures that the surprising focus of the whole Bible is Jesus. All the stories, all the laws, all the prophets, the narrative, the history, all of it, it was always all about him. And there's a reason that's surprising. Take a look at verses 26 and 27. Paul proclaims that to us has been sent the message of salvation. And he tells his listeners about how the rulers and how those in Jerusalem fulfilled the utterances of the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures. They fulfilled the Hebrew scriptures. Paul is saying that the rulers in Jerusalem were part of a bigger story and they didn't even see it. They had no idea. They were pawns in a much bigger story. And by taking Jesus into custody and having him arrested and tortured and executed, they were actually fulfilling the Hebrew scriptures, scriptures they read every week, Paul says. Scriptures they knew well and they heard over and over and over again, but they didn't understand them. They didn't recognize him. Jesus Christ is the surprising focus of the whole Bible, and it's surprising because, like the rulers in Jerusalem, you can spend your whole life learning about the Bible, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, and never actually see it for real. You can master the text of the Bible and miss the point. That's the great danger. That's the shortcoming of these rulers in Jerusalem, and yet, They themselves played their own special role in that great drama of Scripture, the story of redemption and salvation that God was writing in the person and work of Christ. 
Paul says in verse 27, they didn't recognize him. They didn't understand the scriptures that they read every week. And yet, they fulfilled those very scriptures by condemning him. And it continues in verse 29, when, when they carried out, when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. The Bible's not about you and what you do. The Bible is about Jesus and what he's done. How can you spend your whole life reading the Bible and miss the whole point? You come at the Bible first and foremost merely as a text filled with instructions about what you should be doing. And not first and foremost as the great story about a great hero and all that he did for you. You go to the Bible simply to inform your personal set of rules, your code of conduct, and not to meet him. Not to meet him, the one who kept all the rules perfectly and then died in your place because you'll never be able to keep all the rules. In John chapter 5, Jesus is recorded to have said, Uh, to the Jewish leaders who wanted him dead, he said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me for life. And on that famous road to Emmaus in Luke 24, Jesus revealed that he was the true interpretive key to understanding the Hebrew Scriptures. It says, beginning with Moses and all the way through the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. The Bible's not about you. It's about Jesus. This is why C.S. Lewis said, it is Christ himself, not the Bible who is the true word of God. The Bible, read in the right spirit, will bring us to him. That's why modern scholar Ian Duguid said, when we interpret the Old Testament correctly without allegory or artificial manipulation, but in accordance with Jesus' own teaching, the central message of every page is Christ. He says that doesn't mean that every verse taken by itself contains some hidden allusion to Christ, but that the central thrust of every passage leads us in some way to the central message of the gospel. It's why the Jesus Storybook Bible, a great children's Bible published by Zondervan, we we like to give this children's Bible to new moms at our church. The subtitle simply says, Every story whispers his name. The surprising focus of the whole Bible is the true word of God, the word made flesh. Therefore, every passage and every story, all of it can be read in light of him, not in light of you, in light of him. One pastor recently drew this out and summarized how this works, illustrated what it looks like to read the Bible with Jesus at the focus instead of you. 
summarize what it looks like to read all the Old Testament scriptures through the lens of Jesus. And I'd like to simply read his comments on this and give them to you. Jesus is the true and better Adam, passed the test in the garden. His garden is a much tougher garden, and his obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answers the call of God, who leaves all the familiar comforts of the world to go into the void, not knowing where he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is not only offered by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. And while God said to Abraham, now I know you truly love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me, now we, at the foot of the cross, can say to God, now we know you love us, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love, from us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the Lord and the people and mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes the people's victory, even though they didn't lift a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost ultimately the heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life, who didn't say, if I perish, I perish, but when I perish, I will perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread, The Bible's not about you. It's about him. We mustn't fall into the trap that the rulers in Jerusalem did as they read their scriptures often and never truly saw. And fulfilling those very scriptures, Paul says in verse 29, they laid him in a tomb. And that brings us to our second point this morning, the great But God moment, the fact of the resurrection. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. It's a new series we started last week where there is some kind of train of thought, some kind of uh, course of events, and some picture is being painted in the text of Scripture, and then at some very decisive and obvious point, there is this but God statement, some kind of divine intervention that radically changes the course of where things were headed. Perhaps this is the most extreme and amazing of all of them. But God raised him from the dead. They laid him in a tomb isn't the end of the story. But God raised him. Paul preached and the early Christians believed 
that the resurrection was a fact. It's true. Paul's not talking about the resurrection as a lovely symbol. The resurrection is not a symbol. It happened. People saw it. That is how it is presented in the New Testament, and that is how it is presented throughout the history of the church. And because the resurrection is presented in that way, that can be a real nuisance for you if you want to hold on to your secular worldview. This can annoy you. Maybe Christianity offends you or someone you know. Maybe you simply cannot believe in the resurrection of Jesus. It's ridiculous to believe this, you say. It's crazy. Resurrections just don't happen. Duh, by the way. That's why it was kind of a big deal when it did happen. People don't like Christianity for a variety of reasons. But did Jesus or did he not rise from the dead? That's what matters. Just look at Paul. Paul was more offended by Christianity than you. Guarantee it. Paul killed Christians. We don't advise that, by the way. But what changed? What's the deal? He saw the fact of the resurrection. Why did Paul become a Christian? Paul hated Christians. Paul didn't want to become a Christian. But then there was a resurrection. What am I supposed to do with that? It doesn't matter whether you like Christianity or not. It doesn't matter whether you think Christianity is good for society or not. What matters is, is it true? Your job is to try to figure out if it's true or not. And as crazy as it sounds to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, there is an enormous amount of historical evidence that all points in a single direction. The truth is, we all believe all sorts of things in history with confidence because of compelling historical evidence. There was a civil war in America. Christopher Columbus really did complete four voyages across the Atlantic Ocean. Socrates and Plato and Aristotle really were all real guys, ancient philosophers, and we have access to a lot of the things that they said. We have access to them today. The reason that we believe stuff like this with certainty is because historical evidence confirms it. And the startling, the freaky, startling, though unpopular truth is that Jesus' actual resurrection is supported by the same kind of historical evidence. So what's the deal? I mean, what's the problem? Why is it so hard to just believe it? Why is it so hard to accept it? Well, the same way we, ex we accept all sorts of other historical events, what's the problem? It shatters worldviews. I mean, imagine it's true. What does that mean for you? Maybe it's just easier to reject it as a crazy idea so that you can continue on with your cozy life where you're in charge of yourself. But if you do that, you've got a problem. You have to come up with an alternative explanation for the historical data and evidence that points to the resurrection. You've got to figure it out. In his great new book, The Story of Reality, Greg Kokel summarizes some of the primary pieces of historical evidence. Listen to this. Nowadays, 
the vast majority of scholars on the life of Jesus, including those who are entirely secular and have no religious stake in the matter, they all agree on four facts of history. First, Jesus died on a Roman cross on Friday and was buried in a tomb. Second, that tomb was empty Sunday morning. Third, numerous witnesses testified at great peril to themselves that they saw him alive multiple times, that they met with him and even ate with him after he died. And then finally, even the skeptic James and the mortal enemy of Christians, Saul of Tarsus, the guy preaching the sermon in Acts 13, they were convinced that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead and both willingly died rather than recant. James was stoned, Paul beheaded. That's all stuff that's real. You don't get to just simply say, yeah, well, I don't believe that stuff. The New Testament documents are clearly myth and legend. There's no way any of that stuff happened, or maybe there's no way to know for sure whether any of that stuff happened. That's just sloppy thinking, and that's a bad conclusion. The New Testament documents, specifically the gospel accounts and acts, present themselves as eyewitness accounts. That's, how they, that's what they say they are. They present themselves as eyewitness accounts, and they look like it. They look like eyewitness accounts. Kokel points out that historians and scholars across the board, secular and religious alike, all agree, at the very least, that Jesus was a real guy and that the gospel accounts in our New Testament accurately tell his story. Plenty of other historical data confirms the historical facts that Kokel mentions. Scholars across the board affirm them. So, what do you do with it? What do you do with that stuff? You, you so badly want to hold on to your secular worldview, you simply cannot accept that Jesus actually rose from the dead, so you have to embrace a rival explanation. You have to come up with a different version of the story, some other theory that accounts for the historical facts. N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar and a historian who has done groundbreaking work in the reliability and the historicity of the resurrection. I don't buy everything he says on other theological issues, if you're familiar with him, but his work on the resurrection is significant. And looking at these historical facts, Wright offers some of the most common rival explanations, and then he offers brief responses to them. So let me just give them to you. Rival explanation number one, if you track with me. Jesus didn't really die. Somebody gave him a drug. And he, he looked dead, but he wasn't really dead, and then he revived in the tomb. Answer, Roman soldiers knew how to kill people. They were good at it. It's what they did. Rome was in charge, and they made sure everybody knew it. That didn't happen. Also, no disciple would have been fooled by a drugged Jesus into thinking that he actually defeated death. The church never would have gotten off the ground. Historical or rival explanation number two. When the women went to the tomb, they met somebody else. Perhaps it was James, Jesus' brother, and he looked like Jesus a little, and in the half-light of the morning, they thought it was Jesus. Answer, they would have noticed soon enough. 
Rival explanation number three, Jesus only appeared to people who believed in him. Answer, no he didn't. The eyewitness accounts make it clear that Thomas and Paul did not believe in him. And actually, none of Jesus' followers did, at least initially, after his death, that he really was the Messiah. They abandoned him. Number four, rival explanation. The gospel accounts we have are biased. Answer, so is all history, all journalism. Every photo is taken from some angle. Rival explanation number five. They began by saying... He will be raised, as people did for the ancient martyrs, and this kind of morphed into saying he has been raised, which is basically the same. Answer, no, it's not. Basically the same. Rival explanation number six. What actually happened is that they had, and this is a popular one, they had some kind of spiritual experience, and then they interpreted it through their Jewish tradition. Jesus, after all, really was alive, spiritually, and he, they were in touch with him somehow. Answer, resurrection was and is the defeat of death, not just a nicer description of it. And it's something that happens sometime after the moment of death, not immediately. Doing careful historical work, we are beginning to run out of options. N.T. Wright brings this home in his book, Surprised by Hope. Listen carefully. All of this brings us face to face with the ultimate question. The empty tomb and the eyewitness accounts of appearances are as well established and credible as any historical data could hope to be. They are, combined, the only possible explanation for the stories and beliefs that spread so quickly among Jesus' followers. So how do we explain them? Wright says, in any other historical investigation, in any other historical investigation, the answer would be so obvious it would hardly need saying. But here, of course, this obvious answer is so shocking, so earth-shattering that we rightly pause before leaping into the unknown. And here, indeed, as some skeptical friends point out to me, it's always possible to just look at all the evidence and simply say, I don't have a good explanation for what happened, but I choose to believe that dead people don't rise and therefore conclude that something else must have happened, even though I don't know what it was. That's fine, Wright says. I respect that position, but I simply note that it is indeed then a matter of choice, not a matter of careful scientific historical analysis. But at this moment in the argument, all the signposts are pointing in one direction. Verse 30 and 31. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Will you accept that? Either way, what does all this mean? And this takes us into our third and final point, the meaning of the resurrection. Verses 38 and 39. Later in the address, Paul says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What does this mean? What does the resurrection mean? Forgiveness. Freedom. Forgiveness and freedom that will outlive even death itself. We began today with the bleak reminder that death is coming to each of us. It has taken loved ones already. But just think. What if it's true? What if Jesus actually rose from the dead? What would that mean? The late Christopher Hitchens was one of the world's most uh, outspoken atheists. Tragically, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer and he died in 2011. But months before his death, he reportedly went on two separate road trips with his good friend and his professing Christian friend, Larry Taunton. And during these trips, the two of them studied the Gospel of John together. It's true. Taunton writes about his relationship with Hitchens in his book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Maybe you remember him, maybe you remember the story. Christopher Hitchens was greatly criticized publicly by the secular world for spending so much time with this professing Christian, this crazy person. And Larry Taunton was publicly criticized by the Christian world for spending so much time with this obnoxious atheist. Well, there they are in the car. At one point in the trip, they came together to an extremely profound and powerful passage in John chapter 11. It's the scene of the tomb of Lazarus. It's the, te- it's the scene where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Taunton records his interaction with Hitchens on this passage. It's a great verse, I add, sensing that we've reached a defining moment. Yes, Dickens thought so, he says. And then taking off his reading glasses, he turns to me and asks, Do you believe this, Larry Taunton? His sarcasm is evident but it lacks its customary force. I do. But you already knew that I did. The question is, do you believe this, Christopher Hitchens? As if searching for a clever reply, he hesitates and speaks with unexpected transparency. I'll admit that it is not without appeal to a dying man. Why is it appealing? It's appealing because if it's true, that means that death, as bleak and frightening as it is, is not the end. It means there is a beyond, and that beyond is unimaginably beautiful and real. All wrongs really will be put right. Death, that great enemy, really will start working backwards, come undone and give way to a glorious new life, the life we were meant to have. As far as we know, Hitchens remained a staunch atheist to the end, but his heartstrings were pulled. He saw the great appeal of Jesus' resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus either happened or it didn't. If it did, that means you can't keep living your life the way you want to. And it also means that we don't have to be afraid of anything. 
Anything at all. Not Roman swords. The disciples of Jesus died horrible, excruciating deaths. Fearlessly. Boldly. Completely unafraid. Unfazed entirely by the might of the Roman military and authorities. That's true. That's one of those historical facts. That's not made up. It was those same disciples not long in the past who were so afraid and uh, fearful uh, at the death of Jesus that they left him and abandoned him completely. Peter straight up denies knowing him. So full of fear, so timid, utterly transformed. What do you do with that? If the resurrection happened, it means we don't have to be afraid of anything. Not Roman swords, not cancer, nothing. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. Not only that, the resurrection wonderfully satisfies all the deepest longings of the human heart. Many in our culture today would agree that one of the deepest longings we have as human beings is the need for love. Love is the answer. You want to hold on to your secular worldview? What does that mean? It means that love ends when you die. It means love was never really real. It was literally an illusion. Literally a chemical byproduct in our evolved brains. That's it. But who actually lives like that? Who of us actually lives like that's true? We live as if love really is important. And the resurrection confirms that it truly is and that we can experience it fully and truly, even beyond the grave. Paul says forgiveness and freedom are offered to us through this risen Christ. And that means, first and foremost, reconciliation and peace with our Creator God. Paul speaks about reconciliation elsewhere. No matter who you are, No matter what you say you believe, this is what you want. These are the things that you are longing for in the deepest places of your heart. Would you look at it? Would you look at yourself? It's real. It's here. Jesus, by his spirit, is calling us to come and see. 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal, he knew that we had these longings in our hearts. He said, do you miss something you've never had? Do you grieve the absence of a third leg or the loss of a second pair of eyes? No. We ache only when something we once knew, held, tasted, goes missing. We sorrow over the eyes or arms or legs that we once had and then lost, not over those we never had. So Pascal wonders, why is it that our heart feels this harrowing absence, this desolate sense of loss, What are we missing? And the answer is we're homesick for a place that we haven't yet been. We long for a life without sin, without disease, without oppression, without death, without mass shootings. Is it too good to be true? That is precisely the life that we're offered through this risen Christ. Will you trust him? Will you see your need of him? I love verse 42. It's just a few verses down. Paul wraps up this powerful message and the people are there and and the people listen to Paul give this message, this address. And then in verse 42 it says, as they went out, the people begged 
that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Don't you love that? All those listening said, please come back next week. This is what defines us as Christians. This is the heart of our faith. It's the greatest hope for a broken world. It is what transformed lowly, timid, fearful, cowardly disciples into the brave men who started this movement. Fast forward some 2,000 years, here we are. Do you realize we are a part of that same movement, that same story? Salvation has been accomplished. Jesus, the focus of the whole Bible, died for our sins and was laid in a tomb. But God raised him. Hope beyond the grave is offered to all of us. And so they say, come back next week. And let's do so. Bring your friends. This is good news. We shouldn't keep it to ourselves, no? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your word made flesh. We thank you for a salvation that doesn't depend on our works. We thank you for a salvation that depends entirely on the finished work of your word made flesh. And we thank you that he is alive, that you raised him, that the tomb was empty, that as Christians we can have confident hope and trust in this risen king. And by your spirit would you take this gospel, this good news, and allow it to transform every part of who we are, thoughts, words, actions, that everything we say, do, and think would be uh, transformed by our hope in this death-defying, earth-shattering resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do pray in his name. Amen.